Rolling along on a Wednesday, Jake Query, Mark Dykton here as well. Sam Fritz on the big board, Kevin Bowen back on Monday. And if you are planning on being outdoors today for activities, you might want to check. Children's Museum just announcing that outdoor activities for kids today are not going to open up because of the poor air quality due to the smoke from the Canada wildfires. If so, it looks like that here, what does it look like in Canada I, right I now? I thought that. I but I just saw, like, in Toronto, the air quality, the measurement. I, I have no idea how they – I mean, I know what the number means, particles per whatever. But uh, in Toronto, it was 158. Right now in Indianapolis, it's at, like, 225. The higher, the worse it is. Right. Um, bad stuff. Joining us now on the Payless Sickers Hotline from ESPN.com, the Colts writer Stephen Holder joins us. Uh, Stephen, first off, yesterday the Colts – training camp schedule was released Wednesday, July 26th will be the first opportunity for fans to be able to go out for camp kickoff 10 to 11 AM will be practiced. Then on Friday, the same, uh, obviously not every day it is open to fan accessibility, I guess, but it does seem to me, and this is how I know I'm just getting older. It seems like camp gets lighter each year. Am I hallucinating that, or is there some accuracy to that? And I'm not saying that they need to do like the Junction Boys type stuff, but um, it seems like the the days get shorter and shorter. Fact or fiction? No, that's true. That is true. And first of all, I would I would quickly say to your previous point about the air quality. I drove through downtown yesterday, and I was I thought I had made a wrong turn. You could not see the skyline like at all. It's crazy. Couldn't I know. And that was the same this morning, Stephen. I mean, it's it's it, it literally is like I, I told Mark earlier. Like, I, I felt like I was looking at the scene of some Will Smith apocalyptic fictional movie. Exactly, it really did. I, I, I mean, it way, is so. it is weird for sure. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it, no, you're not wrong about about camp, and it's not just the Colts. To be clear, I mean, this is a a league wide trend. It, it's happening. It's happening at all levels. Even down to high schools, that some of the, the smarter coaches have, or at least the op- more open-minded coaches have also gone this way, not to the same extent. But the point is, yeah, I think with the Colts and with the rest of the NFL, frankly, um, if you look at their the makeup of their staff today versus what it was maybe 20 years ago with most teams, uh, you, you see positions that did not once exist. You know, things like sports scientists and dietitians and, and those kinds of things that were never a consideration in the past. The sports science has taken on such a prominent role that they are now fully integrated into everything that these teams do. And whether it proves to be true or not in the long run, we'll see. But, but the science is telling them that less is more. And you know, that that doesn't have anything to do with whether your favorite team wins or loses, right? Because they're all doing it on some level. So it is easy to say, uh, well, you know, they practice less and then they had a bad season. Well, that may or may not happen. But, but I think in the long term, what the science tells them is this is going to be better for players' bodies and recovery and things like that, which directly – affect performance there's no doubt about it so they are they are changing i think the nfl was was it it was slow to happen but i think if you remember back in the 2000s you saw things like the the Corey stringer death for example in minnesota where i can remember you know being a sports writer at that time and i was covering college football 
even at that moment. And I, you could see the sensitivity to that issue immediately kind of come to the forefront, you know, to heat exhaustion and things like that. And so we've traveled now, you know, to an even greater level of awareness uh, two decades later to where we are now. So it's going to look a lot different, you know, if you're an old school football fan, but, but the goal is a noble goal. ESPN Colts reporter Stephen Holder joining us on the Payless Liquors Hotline this morning. Stephen, any thoughts on uh, eight of the 13 practices being morning practices? I know, I believe Frank Reich had mostly like game time practice times. Uh, any any thoughts on that with Shane Steichen going with morning morning practices well, for the most part? I'll say I'll say this. I, Frank Reich during during training camp actually they used to go fairly early in training camp. Now during the season he did have a an approach of wanting to, to practice more so uh, at game time. So that's true. But I, but I think in camp, what they have done is really tried to beat the heat. <laughs> and, and so I think that's twofold for the players and probably also for the fans to a lesser extent. I don't think they care as much about the fans, but I think they do care some. If they're asking people to drive to Westfield, you know, you prefer it to be pleasant. So that's a factor there. And, and I think, the, the, the days in training camp tend to be long as well. So, you know, they're trying to get – I think you're trying to preserve players a little bit. You know, if you have them practicing in the middle of the day, uh, it becomes a longer day for them probably just physically, you know. So so that's what's happening there. I, I do think that makes some sense. I mean, you don't have the same level of humidity at, say, 10 o'clock in the morning as you do at, like, 1 o'clock. The difference is pretty huge, obviously. So I get it. And, and I think there's so, it goes back to a lot of what we were just talking about. It's, it, it goes along the same lines. You know, I can remember back in the day, for example, covering the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, for example. And when I first got on that beat, they were practicing at, at Disney wild, wide World of Sports uh, before moving back to Tampa in a few years. But the point is they would – they would have two days back then. They still had two days back in the mid two thousands. And we'd go out there. I think the first practice was like eight forty five, So it wasn't too bad. And then they had a second practice at like three fifteen in the afternoon. Have you ever walked outside in Florida in July at three fifteen in the afternoon? <laughs> I mean, it was insane. You, you couldn't breathe out there the, with the humidity and all that. So, Teams have gotten a lot smarter about this, and I think a lot of teams are doing their training camp practices in the morning, uh, largely for for these reasons. So you know, it all goes back to just being smart. You know, Stephen, it's interesting because you hear a narrative almost every year with the Colts. If if they get a couple of early injuries, people are like, "Why are the Colts the most injured team in the NFL?" And I don't know that they are, and maybe there has just been bad luck. You know, I don't I don't know what it is. Yeah. Do, do you think there's anything that realistically can be done? throughout camp one way or another to consistently like has there been any formula that has consistently shown to be one that keeps your team healthier than others no it's a great question and i do think every team's fan base thinks their team is the most injured team that that is true (laughs) okay however i will also admit that as having covered the colts now for for 10 years i mean i've spent a lot of those a lot of that time trying to figure out why their injury rates were high. They, they have been on the high side. That is true uh, for, for many of those years. Uh, I, I think they, they feel like they've made some progress there, but I don't, I also don't know that it's, 
that it's attributable to anything necessarily. You know, maybe it is just luck. I, I, I don't know that they can say, well, you know, we did this, we did X and Y happened, and we're really proud of ourselves. I, I don't think they can say that, you know, and no one has identified any particular issue to me. So all you can do is, is do something different than you were doing and hope for different results. So that's why you see, uh, you have seen uh, a change in training uh, approach over the years from year to year. You know, sometimes you've seen changes that way. Uh, you've seen changes to the off season. I, I know that there have been off seasons where they've gone harder than others. This one was probably somewhere in the middle. I don't think they went ridiculously hard. They had, uh, for example, their, their off season, their OTA practices. I mean, they were going about an eh, hour and 15 minutes. You know what I mean? Like they were not very strenuous. And, and a lot of that is just individual work. You know, they weren't going out there and going real hard and 11 on 11 work. So it, it all goes back to, you're just trying to find that, that special sauce, but it's, it's really elusive and, and no one really has found it. The one thing I'd say is that there have been questions and I know, I'm sure you guys have talked about it. There have been questions about the Lucas oil stadium turf and and they have done player surveys over the years that have not reflected kindly on on whether that turf, uh, you know, it, it predisposes players to injury. You know, I don't know that anything can be done about that. Is it, it too deep? And, and by that I mean, Stephen, yeah. for those that are unfamiliar, the turf, you know, you have the little rubber pellets that, that are basically a simulated dirt and then the, the field play or whatever it's called, the turf itself, my fear would be or my thought would be that if if it allows for you to plant too heavily that then your foot is planting and your knee or your ankle is going in a different direction based on the plant right could that be it is it too soft or too deep i'm not sure exactly to be honest um what i can tell you is that there have been some there, there has been some momentum toward um I think a different type of turf. Uh, my understanding is, I believe they use it in European soccer a lot. And, and I forget the name right now, forgive me, but people can Google this and it, the information is out there. There are, there are different types of turf that are in use. The NFL, most NFL teams do not use this other type of turf that I, that supposedly um, is, is better geared you know, to protecting players. And here's the problem is that, replacing turf is very expensive and if you're an nfl owner there's not a lot of incentive for you to go and tear up your entire stadium's turf field and go put down another one and then on top of that your practice facility too because that's just as important in fact that's where they spend most of their time right so you're talking about having to do it in two places possibly on multiple fields at your practice facility and you may or may not see some improvement you know, so it's not as if we can promise that that will lead to improvement. But but anyway, there have been studies done. I, I just think that even though we've been seeing turf fields used for a long time, uh, on the whole, this is still relatively new. You know, if you think about just the totality of time that we've been playing football, I mean, this is still on the newer side. And so I think we're still learning. And there's no doubt about it that, that field turf, is, is something we need to look at very carefully and and take a fresh approach to look at, I think, whenever Steven, possible. think about this. This is insane, okay? Yeah. For the first 
I guess it would have been 20 years of existence, the Indianapolis Colts had their players playing on like a quarter-inch rollout skin rash oh. that was sitting over concrete. I, I mean, oh. it's amazing that Eric Dickerson can walk. I agree. I agree. I mean, Barry Sanders did it on, on that kind of turf, too. You know what I mean? It's, it is amazing. And I remember, you know, I didn't, I never really understood it till I remember as a kid, uh, my, my family had a, had a good friend. We had good friends in Houston, Texas, and we went to visit them once. Um, we were thinking about moving out there and we ended up going to an Astros game and, and we did not have a baseball team in South Florida at this time. And, and obviously it being South Florida, there was no artificial turf i had never even seen this stuff <laughs> so uh you know we play outdoors you know so anyhow go to the astro turf i'm sorry go to the astro dome and sit in the sit in the outfield I'm pretty close up and willie mcgee's out there running around on this stuff and i'm like this is carpet totally it was shocking and it was like plastic carpet that was just like literally <laughs> if you get within six inches of it you immediately get a rash i mean it was crazy it was Did you see to me even as a kid? You know, Stephen, have you seen, uh, on a side note, and we'll get back to the football in a second here, but this does interest me. Like, I just recently read an article about the Philadelphia Phillies of the early to mid-90s and the number of players they've had that have either been stricken by or passed away from, like, brain tumors or cancer. And they believe that it – they don't know, but they theorize that it could be from – the heat vapors that came off of the particular kind of turf they used in Veterans Stadium. And wow. That, honestly, isn't that wow. crazy? Like, because you're talking about, about basically story. melting plastic that well, you're standing exactly on. exactly what came to mind. Yeah, like it's like someone working on an assembly line, you know, with, around some hazardous chemical, and then 20 years later they got to do, you know, 3M <laughs> to, to get their uh, – to, to get their their medical bills paid or something. I mean, that's that's insane. I had not heard that. That is heavy. Wow. Hey, um, when are we going to hear? And and I know this is my my weekly question. Stephen Holder is our guest on the Payless Sugars Hotline. You can read his work at ESPN.com covering the Colts. I, and I realize, Stephen, I've asked you this probably weekly, but when, if at all, are we going to hear resolution on the Isaiah Rogers story, or should this guy never have taken to Twitter? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I, I don't know what the resolution is going to be, but we have we continue to hear that it's going to be soon. I thought it might. I thought it might have been last week, frankly, and that did not happen. Uh, but I think it will be very soon. Not soon, but very soon, potentially. From what I hear, let's put it that way. I'm guessing uh, no Major idea, League Baseball's All Star Break, maybe <laughs> right when baseball's got their biggest <laughs> summer league show off. Yeah, that's right. I'm thinking more like Friday at five mm -hmm. or four fifty nine. You know, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there, but yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of how the NFL does business. So you know, the Friday news dump is is very frequently their preferred method. So we'll see, we'll see. But I, I have not heard any specifics about what the resolution might be or what the decision might be that I don't know. Steven, what does a reasonable contract extension for Jonathan Taylor look like and a request that he would throw out that the Colts would listen to They're like, Oh, that's fair for both yeah. sides. That's a great question. And it's a hard question, uh, but they better figure it out by the way, because this guy's not happy. I'm going to tell you, this, this is true. I, and I've heard some more since his comments the other day, a couple of weeks ago, 
Uh, I've, I've gotten some additional context around that, and he, he's really not happy. And I'm not saying that means you have to run and just give him whatever he wants. It's a negotiation. I get it. Uh, but I'm just saying, I mean, we've never seen this from, from Jonathan Taylor, the ultimate say the right thing and raw, raw team guy. He's always to the point where, you know, secretly among ourselves, uh, the, the beat writers, we roll our eyes at, at him. Like, I mean, I know I shouldn't say that publicly, but, you know, in a in a kidding kind of way, we roll our eyes. It's like, oh, my God, Jonathan, like, say something. You know, you guys lost 14 games in a row, you know, and and he's always like, yeah, we just got to keep playing hard, keep trying. And now this is the guy out there saying, damn it, pay me. I'm tired of this. <laughs> I mean, it was shocking when you think about it from that perspective. Like the guy who would say nothing now is is like, you guys are screwing me, and saying it publicly. That was shocking. I think people have to really understand that part. Anyway, to your question, I, I think the the three year timeline has kind of been thrown around, and I think has been popular. I kind of like that because I think you probably have, just based on what we know about running backs, you you can probably realistically expect a couple more really good years from him. And then after that, it depends. You know what I'm saying? It depends on injuries. It depends on workload. It depends on a lot of things, right? Does he see decline? He's a, he's a guy who relies heavily on speed. You know, when does that start to change? You know, so, so those, are, those are all the variables when you start talking about the length of the contract. So I like that. I think the question has to be, you know, what are we talking about on average per year? And, and how much can you give them up front? Those are kind of, you know, those are, those are difficult things to figure out. But I, I do think somewhere in the, I don't know, I think over the first two years, I, I think if you're him, you want to get somewhere in the neighborhood of, of $40 million if you're him. That doesn't mean you're making $20 million a year. I'm just saying in what, what he takes to the bank over the first two years, you'd like that to be, if just throwing it out there off the top of my head, you'd like it to be 35 to 40 million. And then the, the, the last year can just be kind of whatever, but you know, that would involve once you, once you factor in the signing bonus and things like that, I think it's pretty, I don't think it's real hard to get to that number, you know? So, you know, what's the total number? I don't know. I mean, is it, you know, is it, is it 45? Is it 48? Is it 50? That kind of depends on how you structure it. But the big thing, if I'm his agent, you know, most of the time, if you're talking about a multi-year contract, what you care about is what you get on day one and what you're going to get over the, the first two years, three years, if it's a longer contract, that kind of thing. So for a three-year deal, I would highlight what he gets in the first couple of years. And if you're the Colts, those are the years you care about because once you get to year three for a running back who's on a second contract, you know, that's when you start to have to assume nothing. It's Kevin and Query, ESPN Colts reporter Stephen Holder, joining us on the Payless Liquors Hotline for another couple minutes. Stephen, I want to circle back to what you said about Jonathan Taylor's unhappiness. Does that have more to do with outplaying his contract or more seeing the landscape of the running back situation in the NFL right now where he's seeing other veteran guys, you know, Dalvin Cook getting released, Ezekiel yeah. Elliott still out of a job, Austin Eckler fighting with the Chargers, Najee Harris fighting with the Steelers, Saquon Barkley fighting with the Giants. Is that more to do with he's seeing the state of running back and kind of like, okay, I better get my money while I can? What's going on there? Uh, I think I think it's both. I, I think it's both. It's, I mean, look, there have been – if you go back to 2021, for instance, uh, I mean, that team ultimately, 
you know, failed at the end of the season. But, but let's just talk about the impact Jonathan Taylor had that year. I mean, where are they without him? I mean, you know, I, we could talk about Carson Wentz, 27 touchdowns, seven interceptions, blah, blah, blah. Let me, let's, let's be honest, okay? The only reason that team moved the ball was Jonathan Taylor, okay? <laughs> let's, let's not even pretend. That's why they moved the football that year. And so and he, he paid for it um, with, you know, with having a physical setback last year. You know, this guy has like 300, 330 carries or something along those lines. Running backs with over 300 carries uh, very rarely have a, a good follow-up season. And I did the research on this. And he, he was well over 300 that year. And he paid a price for it. And so – I think he's looking at it from a workload standpoint. And if I don't get it now, and then I have another big workload this year, where does that leave me? I would be very reluctant to get out there and want to, and want to carry the ball, you know, 250, 300 times this year, if you're Jonathan Taylor and not get my money, I I, I would be aghast at having to do that. But Steven, my thing is this, do you get return on investment? Well, that's, that's a fair question. I think uh, now there's there's two ways of looking at this. From a production standpoint, statistically, yes. But does that mm-hmm. translate into wins in 2023 in the National Football League? That's that's the fair question, and it, it is a totally fair question. I think if you as it relates to Jonathan Taylor, what you have to do is you have to ask yourself, okay, is there? Because I think the running back position in in general, right? We can kind of answer that question. And the answer to your question is not necessarily because they are largely interchangeable. And that's why teams have taken this approach. You know, we can just plug guys in. If we got a good blocking scheme, we're going to run the ball. And and that's proven relatively true. The question the Colts have to ask and, and what Jonathan Taylor's case likely is, is that, well, I'm different. And I think there's a case to be made for that. You know, I'm not your average running back. I, I do think for him, if I'm his agent, I'm not. If I'm his agent, though, the case I make is that, look, I, this guy is a big play player. Okay? He's a big play player. And, and that kind of separates him from, you know, the guys who maybe have a lot of yardage but, but maybe are, you know, sort of a, you know, four yards or five yards of carry, and they just kind of consistently move the chains. That's great, but that's not going to win you games. Jonathan Taylor – can make big plays that do win you games. He has done that. And so I think that's been his biggest calling card. So that, to your question, it's not as straightforward, you know, does it, does it translate? It's not as straightforward with Jonathan Taylor because of the kind of player he is. Now then the question becomes, will he continue to be that player? He was hurt last year and he was not that player. So, but that's, that's the nature of doing these contracts. You know, you are, you're projecting, and that's a hard thing to do. I think it's a hard negotiation. I have said this, I said this a long time ago, and it's proven to be true. This is going to be a hard negotiation, and here we are. Okay, most critical question to wrap it up for you, Stephen. You ready? A little peek okay. behind the curtain for people in midsummer content here on Sports Talk Radio. Probably most would be stunned to know this, except for the the cultured nature of the two of us. Um, when not talking about the Colts on the radio, you and I take in Broadway musicals together. This is a fact. <laughs> well, I, I, well, singular, not plural. But <laughs> okay, well, it has happened. Yes, <laughs> that we we have others that are on the docket here that that 
maybe up and coming. I'm I'm interested okay. to see To Kill a Mockingbird in January, for example. Disney's Frozen probably not of interest to me. Um, Tina Turner. There's a musical about Tina Turner coming up in April. Uh, that's coming uh-huh. here. At any rate, the most recent uh, that that came through that we saw at Clues, the two of us saw, was Ain't Too Proud, which was the story of The Temptations. In your, I don't know how many Broadway shows you have seen, you would rank it where? Would that be like average, slightly above average, below average, or you know, good, very good, et cetera? Look, I'm, I, as I admitted before, I'm not the authority, but I would tell you in my um, uncultured, from my uncultured point of view, I thought it was excellent. Like I had no expectations and I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I really was surprised because I went in with no expectations, really kind of not knowing what we were getting into. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. The performances were, were great. Yeah. And I, I didn't, you, you are, you are much more um, of a, of a, um, I think expert on this. So Theater you nerd, you can say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. No, but he, but he does know more than me about this. And I thought you, you felt the same way, right? Yeah. I thought it was really well done. You know, the, it's interesting because Steven is, as you and I were talking about in the, when we were in the audience, you know, for me personally, the temptations certainly, you know, they're one of those, they're an iconic, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, Motown act. And, the number of songs, you know, there were several songs in it that I'm like, you know what? I'd forgotten this was the Motowns. I would have, or yeah. excuse me, the Temptations. I would have thought it was the Supremes or the Platters or another Motown act. I thought the story was fascinating. I didn't realize the backstory, not only of the band, but some of the conflict within the band, the loyalty within the band. Um, so I thought it was really well done. And then I always think to myself, Stephen, and this is what I, this is why I wish people could take their younger people to see shows. You, as I was watching the performance and listening to the performers sing the songs of the Temptations, that many of them sounded exactly like the Temptations, right? Mm, yeah. And I was thinking to myself, you know, probably a percentage of the people that I'm sitting here watching perform on stage that are getting a standing ovation were like outcasts in their high school graduating class, or were just like the yeah. the, the, the forgotten yeah. you know nerds or whatever else. You know what I mean? Like to use yeah. those high school terms. And here they are, right? I mean, just un- and and then you think to yourself, like, there are a lot of really talented people out there, man. Really talented yeah, people. Yeah, I, I thought about like you know those theater kids, you know, like you said in, in high school that they maybe get made fun of. Well, now they're on stage, you know, getting standing ovations from uh, from thousands of people, which is kind of cool, you know. Totally, so I, I did think about that. Yeah, yeah, totally. It was uh, it was very cool. Well, Stephen, we appreciate the time as always. Be safe today. Honestly, st- stay inside, man. It's ugly out, you know. Yeah, it's ugly out there. It's been a long time since I've said that, if ever before, about smoke, but that's the reality of it. Stephen, appreciate it. Okay, guys. Take care. Stephen Holder from ESPN.com on the Payless.